Dr. Rechna Patel is an emergency medicine physician who has a medical marijuana telemedicine practice, a book, and her own CBD oil. Now, medical marijuana and CBD specifically seem to have become as panacea or snake oil with magical properties that can cure everything. Kind of like what we tell our patients about good nutrition and exercise. She helps to clear up fact from fiction during our wide-ranging and comprehensive discussion from the current state of dispensing, its legal status, biochemistry, risks, FDA-approved and internationally-approved derivatives, methods of ingestion, and for what conditions she recommends CBD and medical marijuana. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Ruchna Patel, who specializes in medical marijuana. So that's going to be the topic today. So Dr. Patel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So first, let's talk about your origin story, which is a pretty interesting story. First, start off with your training and then how you got into medical marijuana. Yeah. So during training, uh, my background is actually in emergency medicine. I found myself, basically, what do you do as an ER doctor? You rule out emergent cause, right? And if the emergent cause has been ruled out, typically you send the patient on their way with a script for prescription medications, typically opioids, because most patients come into the emergency room complaining of pain and a recommendation to follow up with their primary care doctor. Now, given the way that our, our healthcare system is set up, a lot of these patients would end up coming back to the emergency room. I'd see the same patients, and they would complain that the medications didn't work or that they were getting side effects from the medications. Or I was in the unfortunate position of having to resuscitate patients that had overdosed on these medications. And then things really hit home for me on my toxicology rotation, where the only thing I saw were overdoses on prescription and over-the-counter medications. So, you know, there I was as a physician. I became a doctor bright-eyed thinking that I will actually help people. I will actually help them to solve problems in their lives. And I, instead, what I felt like was I was creating problems. And, you know, during residency, you're working, gosh, what, over 100 hours sometimes a week. And so you experience a ton of insomnia. There comes a point where you've been awake for so long, you just can't sleep. And, and that's what I was experiencing. So during those times where I was too wired to fall asleep, but too tired to really do anything else productive, I would surf the internet. And I, I happened on an ad on Craigslist. That said, medical marijuana doctor needed. I didn't reply to the ad right away. I, I spent a good year digging into the research. I just hung out on PubMed.gov, looked at research study upon research study. What you know, what little information there was available on uh, medical marijuana at the time. And about a year later is when I found another ad because there were ads abound on Craigslist. 
And I responded to that ad. And so I have now been a medical marijuana doctor since 2012, essentially a veteran in the field. So you didn't find your job after residency by looking on LinkedIn. I mean, I don't know if any doctor does. Going to hospital websites, talking to previous graduates. You found your job on Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> by responding Incredible. to an ad on Craigslist. <laughs> I, made, I mean, in fact, I made a whole career just because I responded to an ad on Craigslist. All right. Well, what was the second coolest thing that you've ever found on Craigslist? Roommates that have turned into lifelong friends. Um, you know, back when Craigslist wasn't shady, okay, this is what was there like, a time when Craigslist wasn't shady? Yeah, like early millennials. You know, when I when Craigslist first came out when I was back in like college, that's where everybody went to to find places to live and to find roommates. And it wasn't shady. Recently, I tried to like buy furniture on Craigslist and like there's people asking me for a cashier's check before even seeing the piece of furniture. And it's like, okay, this what happened? This is not the Craigslist that I remember. <laughs> We're trying to rent apartments in, in New York City and then you go to see the apartment and it clearly looks nothing like the picture. The old bait right. switch. Right, so there's actually a lot a lot to unpack in what you said about how you first got into medical marijuana. First, it relates to burnout, which is something that we talk about a lot on this show. And one of the sources of burnout is is that we're not able to stem the tide of the systemic problems that are leading to the health issues that lead us lead people into the office, right? So you're dealing with a systemic issue that uh, leads to opioid addiction, the lack of safety nets and the lack of the ability for for these patients to get follow-up care. So there's that. And then Mm -hmm. the opioid crisis. So your response to the opioid crisis is, is there something else out there? And so that's how you ended up um, in medical marijuana. So I think those are two tremendous issues that you really addressed in your career. Yeah. And I think it just came from like, a gut feeling where it was like, okay, I can't spend my life not actually, you know, just clocking in and clocking out just to, and be a slave to my wages. Uh, Like there has to be meaning and purpose to what I do. So tell us about your practice now or, or how it started and then how it evolved. Sure. So I started off to learn the ropes by working at a medical marijuana clinic in California. And I did that for a period of about two years. And then in 2014, I started my own practice. Now, the reason being, a lot of these clinics that popped up in California specifically, because there's loopholes in the law, they were essentially mills where uh, doctors were just handing out medical marijuana cards like candy. Um, The consultation would be maybe all of like, I don't know, five minutes. And the clinic that I worked at, there was definitely a lot of pressure to turn over patients, right? No different than in regular medicine, where there's a lot of pressure to see, you know, to see as many patients in as little time as possible. So I remember there were times in that clinic where I saw in a matter of seven hours, probably 60 patients. And if I took more than like five to 10 minutes, and probably a lot of this is illegal, 
But if I took more than five to 10 minutes, you know, the receptionist would, wouldn't even knock on the door. They just come barging into the office saying that your next patient is, is ready. And I actually remember going to the Osteopathic Medical Board of California about this, saying that, hey, because I, I didn't have any other, you know, I worked for a, a small clinic, so I didn't have anybody else to go to. So I went to the Osteopathic Board of, of um, California and I said, this is the situation. And their response was, well, you don't have to work there. And I was like, okay, well, great. Well, this is definitely helping the cause. So, and the other thing that happened was that a lot of these patients were coming to me and medical marijuana has been legal in California since 1996. And this is back in 2012. So it had been legal for quite a while before I started. And so these were patients that had, you know, been using medical marijuana for a while, but they, you know, complained to me that, hey, you know, I use medical marijuana, but sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. When I go to the dispensary, I don't know what to pick. You know, and so they wanted answers to questions like that. And you need, as a physician, you know, a lot of this you can figure out. If you know basic pharmacology and then you study the pharmacokinetics of cannabinoids, you can put two and two together and figure it out, especially when you're getting uh, clinical feedback as well, right? So that's essentially how I figured out. Basically, I now have protocols by medical condition on how to use medical cannabis for these specific conditions. So, and, and you need time for that. You need to really sit down, spend time with the patient and be like, okay, give me a history. Tell me what's going on. What medications are you taking? What have you taken in the past? And then based off of that, I can give them, you know, best practices for their uh, medical conditions. So at that point, you know, I had earned enough capital to start a very lean medical practice. And I did it differently. You know, I was definitely charging a premium and seeing fewer patients, but I was able to spend more time with them. And, uh, you know, and I gained a lot of trust uh, in that way of the patients that I was seeing. So there weren't, there were hardly any doctors that were doing it the way that I was doing it. So let me just get this straight, because it sounds like, at least in the state of California, you would give the patient a prescription for medical marijuana but it really wouldn't, well, what, what would that prescription say on it? Would it just say, not not yours, but the standard medical marijuana prescription? Did it say anything about the dosing or the regimen, or does it just say you are approved for medical marijuana? Uh, so the basic language is, is that based on my uh, professional medical uh, opinion and evaluation, I believe that this patient benefits from the use of medical marijuana for his or her condition. So it's not even a prescription. It's called what's called a recommendation, right? So then they then they go to a dispensary where someone who was hired at the dispensary may be getting after having been fired as a barista from Starbucks, maybe not. It works there, and then they make their recommendation for what the patient needs, kind of like going to a bartender and asking the bartender, "What drink do you recommend for my back pain or my anxiety or my?" post-chemotherapy nausea, right? You're not getting that. Sounds like you're not getting that information from the doctor. You're getting it from someone with no professional training or expertise. Yeah. No experience other than the fact that they're probably heavy users of marijuana themselves. That is their only experience. That's amazing. Okay. So, so that's essentially, yeah, you got it. That's essentially what's happening. Now, you know, California was the beta. Right, based on the mistakes that California made, other states are doing it differently. Right, one of the ways that they're doing it differently 
is that number one, you can't go straight from the doctor's office with your re- your recommendation or what's called a certification to the dispensary. There's an in-between. And that in-between is that you need to register with the state that you live in, right? So you have to show things like proof of residency. You have to uh, provide medical uh, records to back up your diagnosis. Someone also double-checks that, okay, uh, based on the medical records, based on the physician's evaluation, that this patient would actually benefit from the use of medical marijuana. So let's take the state of Pennsylvania, for instance. In terms of numbers, now they legalized early, so 2018. They legalized prior to that, but the medical marijuana program went into place in 2018, January. Since then, uh, to this point, they've now uh, registered 100,000 patients, but only 70% of those patients have actually received uh, their state ID card to then actually get medical marijuana from the dispensary. Is that because bureaucracy is slow or because those patients have been denied? Probably they've been denied. Okay. Because it sounds like a bit, it sounds like a laborious process too to go through all that, right? Right. Yeah. Not in California, right? Not, now it's legal for recreational use, so you can just oh, if you're over the age of twenty one, you can just walk into the sensory. But right. prior to two thousand eighteen, the way it worked was that you could just go to your doctor and then go straight to dispensary. But all, all the other states did it differently. I don't know of any other state that did it the same as California. Uh, the other thing with California was that there wasn't a restricted list of medical conditions. Somebody snuck in the phrase uh, after the list of medical conditions and any other illness. So basically, it was up to the discretion of the physician to determine whether or not the patient would benefit from medical marijuana, right? Which is typically how medicine works. But when you're dealing with marijuana and, you know, when there's financial incentives to just hand out cards, at any then at that point, you know, it, it, your, your ethics sort of go out the window and you're then just approving any medical condition and just handing out the cards. So that's another thing that I think other states learned from California. They have a restricted list of medical conditions that beyond this list of conditions, uh, you know, the use of medical marijuana cannot be approved. So how do you think that liberalization of recreational marijuana is going to impact medical marijuana? Um, Well, there's data to back this up as well, right? I believe, I forget if it was Oregon or Washington, or maybe it was Colorado, one of the states. I think it was Colorado. They have data to show that as soon as marijuana gets legalized for recreational use, the number of medical marijuana patients drops significantly. And, you know, is there an economics behind it? There certainly could be, right? Because you're now not having to pay a physician for an evaluation, which oftentimes can be a hefty fee, right? It can run anywhere from $200 to $250, sometimes even more. And then you're having to spend money on the medication itself. So a lot of people would just bypass the physician altogether and DIY it at the dispensary. How much success they'll have, I don't know, right? Especially if you're getting your dosing recommendations from the dispensary to begin with, right? Then if the doctor Mm -hmm. is just giving you the permission and now the state has given you permission, well, then you don't need the doctor at all. You just need the dispensary in order to get it, which is, again, where you come in, right? With your recommendations for 
frequency and and dosing and then you know the differentiating between THC and CBD which we're going to get to later so you know you're you right. carved your niche even in places where there is recreational marijuana available right because even in those areas there's going to be people who are going who are like okay well I think I'd rather just go to a doctor and make sure I do it right because yeah. I don't want to get high off of marijuana I you know I am taking prescription medications you know what if there's side effects I've even had patients you know, who've had heart attack and they're like, okay, should I take using marijuana or should I not be using it? So there's questions like that that definitely come up and are relevant, medically speaking. And so while, while we're on the topic of the legal issues, um, I just want to mention that it is still classified by the FDA as a class one drug. And what that means is there is no therapeutic value according to the FDA. So here we are talking about the therapeutic value of medical marijuana, which certainly quite a bit is still up in the air. And so we're going to be getting to that later. But what the FDA is is saying is there is no therapeutic value, which is why it remains a class one drug. Yet there are states where it's legal. And so how do you, how is it illegal federally, but legal in the state? And how does that work? And that means federal funds. And I think this came through under Obama, that federal funds can't be used to prosecute in states where it's legal. So that's where, why in, you can have a dispensary, even though at the federal level, you're doing something illegal. Right. So federal law always trumps state law, but the, the federal government also has to enforce the federal law as well, right? And so way back when, yeah, the federal government was enforcing state law by raiding dispensaries. That's typically who they went after are the people who were actually selling marijuana, not physicians, not patients, but the people who were selling and the people who were growing marijuana. But yeah, as it stands, THC specifically is considered a class one substance uh, per federal law. But you have states that have now 10 states plus District of Columbia that have now legalized marijuana for recreational use. And we have 33 states that have a medical marijuana program in place. So more than half, a lot more than half. And so essentially that's what it comes down to is uh, the federal government making a decision to actually enforce federal laws, which has been less and less as I've seen it, you know, since back in 2012. Oh yeah, I think this has developed momentum and it's only going to spread spread further and further. But one of the things that that's confusing to me is that you can now buy substances that contain CBD. So we're going to talk in a little yeah. bit about the difference between THC and CBD, but since we're talking about the legal issues, right? How is it that you can just buy CBD in a skin cream? Right. So CBD is classified a little differently. So it's interesting because the hemp plant itself was on a national level deemed legal to grow. So before you go any further, what's the difference between hemp and marijuana? Okay. So basic difference. They're like cousins. Okay. Marijuana and hemp are like cousins. They're from the same family. Main difference is uh, a legal distinction in terms of the amount of THC that's made, okay? So by law, hemp uh, should not have, uh, hemp or any hemp-derived product should not have more than 0.3% THC. And then by default, marijuana products 
have more than 0.3% THC. That's essentially what it comes down to. And this 0.3% is arbitrary. If there's nothing scientific about it, there was a guy named Ernest Small way back when who decided it's going to be 0.3%. And so it's stuck since then. And so that's, that, you know, here we are today. And then, okay, so back to what was the question that I was originally answering? I think it dovetails into the the CBD. So how how can we have CBD in all these other substances, products? Yeah, so you had Farm Bill 2014, which allowed uh, certain uh, institutions to uh, grow hemp for, for research purposes. And then fast forward to 2018, where the the cultivation of hemp has now been legalized, okay? Now, CBD is tricky. It's in a gray area. Even when you read the law, different departments say different things. So the DEA is saying one thing. The FDA is saying one thing. There's no united front when it comes to CBD. So it's really murky. So let me tell you what each of them are saying. Per, and a lot of this changed because of a prescription medication called Epidiolex, okay? This is basically an FDA-approved version of CBD. It's just like the CBD that comes from hemp and and the CBD that comes from marijuana, the molecule is the same. It's just that in its, the formulation that it's in has been approved by the FDA. Okay, so this all happened in the summer of 2018. What happened was, this company called GW Pharma, I believe they partnered up with Bayer, came up with this medication. They did clinical trials. It was approved for a specific subset of, of epilepsy, pediatric epilepsy. And basically, the, the FDA went, hey, look, we've approved this drug. Uh, it's gone through you know, uh, phase three clinical trials. And then they went to the DEA and they said, you need to reclassify CBD. It was pretty much that, that easy. And they said, you have 90 days to do it. So what the DEA decided was, okay, CBD in, uh, that's in an FDA-approved drug is going to be considered class 5. CBD that's in any other form is going to be considered class 1, which as a physician, it makes no sense because it's the same damn chemical doing the same damn thing, right? And where it comes from doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, you know, the end product will be more standardized when it comes from a pharmaceutical company, at least we hope, as opposed to it being extracted by a grower or manufacturer out in Colorado. So that's essentially where we stand. The FDA also says that a lot of uh, what was going on was that CBD was being sold as a supplement, a dietary supplement. So they've made the statement that CBD cannot be sold as a dietary supplement, but it still is, right? CBD is being sold rampantly, and the FDA doesn't have any enforcement jurisdiction, as far as I know. And the DEA, I believe there was something somewhere that said that they're not going to spend funding on enforcing the THC and and the the CBD products. Not the THC products, sorry, but the CBD products being sold. So that's kind of where we stand. And it's basically an unregulated industry. 70% of CBD products are mislabeled. So people are, are out there buying, you know, a one ounce bottle of pretty much olive oil and paying like a lot of money for it in hopes that it will help things like their pain or their anxiety or their insomnia. But 70% of the time, it doesn't help them because these products are mislabeled. 
Well, that's the supplement industry to begin with, right? It's because it's not regulated by the FDA. They're not subject to any type of screening to make sure that they're selling what they actually say that they're selling. And actually, that happens in restaurants too. That happens in restaurants where they tell you that you're getting one fish and you're really eating another. I think there was an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago about the frequency of mislabeling food, particularly fish, on the menu where you think you're you're eating one type of fish and really you're you're eating type of an, another. So so as much as people like to trash the FDA, at least by and large, we are getting what we think we're getting. So um, but yeah, it's it sounds like CBDs in in the wild west of the of the supplement industry. Right. Exactly. So you you mentioned what was that product that's you that's a CBD is it is it CBD or just CBD derivative that's used to treat epilepsy pediatric epilepsy? Yeah, so it's CBD derived from cannabis, not hemp, and um, it's called Epidiolex, E-P-I-D-I-O-L-E-X, and it's quite pricey. Because why wouldn't it be? Right. (laughs) So are there any other, either any other marijuana-derived medications that have been approved by the FDA? So what I want to get to is I want to start off talking about really the the stuff that's backed by as much evidence as possible, and then we'll kind of loosen it up a bit. Yeah. So there is another marijuana-derived medication not approved in the United States, but approved in other countries called Sativex. That is also a cannabis derivative of both THC and CBD. And then finally, we have molecules that mimic THC, right? So you have uh, dronabinol, which uh, goes by the trade name Marinol. And then you have Nabilone. And I forgot the trade name for that. But uh, those are uh, basically synthetically derived or synthetically produced twins of THC. And what do those do? They have been approved. uh, They were approved back in the around the 1980s for the use of nausea, vomiting, and lack of appetite in patients who are undergoing chemotherapy and in HIV/AIDS patients. Okay, so so far we have some specific types of pediatric epilepsy that are treated with marijuana derivatives. We have nausea, vomiting wasting syndromes that are treated with marijuana derivatives are there or uh, synthetic versions thereof are there any other currently fda approved uh, medications either derived or that mimic any other aspect of marijuana those are the main ones those are the and ones and okay. specifically sativex like i said sativex is not approved in the united states but it's been approved in other countries like the United Kingdom, Israel is one of them, Australia, for multiple sclerosis, spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. Do you know if they're, they're used for spasticity in any other condition or is it that specific that it's just in multiple sclerosis? Just multiple sclerosis. Okay. Because that, okay. that's what they, they, they ran the, the clinical trials on. So let's take a step back and just talk about some of the biochemistry, just some basic biochemistry, right? Because the tagline for the podcast is everything that we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So we don't want to get into the minutiae of fumarase 
And I can't remember any of the steps of the citric acid cycle, but you get what I'm saying. So just some, right. some basics of the biochemistry of uh, THC and CBD. How do they work? What do they bind to? Where, where are those receptors? Sure. So you have, in terms of receptors, the, the most prevalent receptors that the cannabinoids interact with are CB1, cannabinoid 1 receptor, and CB2, cannabinoid 2 receptor. Okay. CB1 is uh, very prevalent in the central nervous system, whereas CB2 is more prevalent in the immune system. In terms of ligands, right? So ligands that chemicals that interact with these receptors, we have endocannabinoids, right? So cannabinoids that are body producers, the two of which have been most studied include anandamide, which is similar in structure to THC, and 2-AG, okay? So those are endocannabinoids. And then you have phytocannabinoids. So these are the cannabinoids that are derived from either marijuana or from hemp. And they, those that are made in most prevalent by these plants are CBD and THC. And then you have the synthetic cannabinoids, which I talked about, such as uh, Marinol and Nabilone as well. So what about side effects? What are the types of side effects that you see with Let's start with THC. Sure. So with THC, if any of your listeners have ever gotten high back in high school or college, what you experienced were the side effects of THC, right? So the, so, so the side effects occur uh, based on dose. If you overdo it, you're going to experience side effects, which is typical of basically any medication. And so with THC, the most common side effects include palpitations, right? So your heart's going to feel like it's racing, uh, anxiety, or in worst case scenario, paranoia dry mouth, and uh, dizziness. Those are the most common side effects of THC. Now, that's if you somewhat overdo it. If you really overdo it, in all likelihood, you'll, you know, you'll probably be like curled up in a fetal position somewhere and you'll feel really nauseous. You'll, you may start vomiting and you may hallucinate. And with CBD, the worst case scenario, if you take too much, the most common side effects that have been reported include tiredness, diarrhea, and uh, changes in appetite and weight. The side effects of THC somehow remind me of, uh, you know, hot as a hair, dry as a bone, mad as a yeah. hatter, whatever, that, that uh, medical mnemonic. What about the potential for overdose? Overdose? So we don't have cannabinoid receptors in our brain stem, right? And that's the area that controls the breathing. And so though you may feel really crappy by overdosing on these chemicals, it, it's not. They're not. It's not lethal. The dose. It's not a lethal substance. And and you mentioned that if you've ever gotten high, then you've experienced the side effect of THC. You know, keep in mind that that's. I mean, our listeners keep in mind. I know you keep that in mind. That that's all a matter of perspective, right? Like Benadryl. Benadryl, when used as an antihistamine for its, uh, or diphenhydramine, when used as an antihistamine, one of the side effects is drowsiness. Now. Yep. If you're taking NyQuil or taking Tylenol PM, well, the active drowsiness-inducing medication is diphenhydramine. So you're using the side effect as the desired effect. And so potent is or effective is NyQuil that they branded ZQuil, which is just diphenhydramine. Some brilliant marketing, I think, in some ways. I maybe right. went to the wrong profession. <laughs> Should have gone into marketing. So... Okay, so no overdose potential for those because there's no binding in the brainstem, so there's no potential for respiratory depression. 
Um, what about any drug interactions that you see? Um, yeah, there can be drug interactions with CBD specifically. What they found when they were studying Epidiolex was that um, when taken in conjunction with valproic acid, which is a commonly prescribed anti-seizure medication, they saw the participants' um, liver enzymes uh, and liver enzyme levels go up. Okay, so in general, they just said in that in in that uh, study that. Any medication that has the capacity to cause uh, hepatocellular injury should be used with caution when used with CBD, right? So you really want to have your liver enzyme, uh, enzyme levels monitored when you're taking something that could potentially cause injury to your liver and you're taking CBD along with it, okay? With THC, it's a little bit, bit more gray because there isn't as much definitive data on it. There was a case study where a patient who was on THC took warfarin and impacted their INR levels. But clinically, I've treated patient upon patient with, who were on warfarin. And, you know, from year to year, we track their INR levels and it stayed the same. You know, they didn't, they didn't have to adjust the warfarin levels. The INR levels were not impacted. So, you know, I, I don't know if that one case report, that, you know, who knows what could have happened there. So, and I haven't really seen any other major drug interactions with THC off the top of my head. If you go to a few episodes ago with Dr. AFib, where he was talking about the use of warfarin for AFib, it looks like, because when I was a resident, that was the anticoagulant of choice. Uh, but now with Eliquis and some other medications, it looks like most of those patients that were previous on warfarin are, are getting off of it. So, that other potential interaction, that the case report uh, is not going to be as relevant as maybe it once was. Yeah, and I'm actually going to have Dr. Morales on my YouTube channel to discuss this very thing, ACIB and medications that are used and potential for interaction with CBD and THC. So wow. tune into that YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. So we've talked about side effects. We've talked about overdose. We've talked about interactions. What about addiction? Addiction. Okay, so this is really interesting. There's there's this whole sort of notion that marijuana is a gateway drug, right? And I looked into the research on this as well. Around back in 2010, there was an international study done, excuse me, where you know they actually studied whether or not marijuana is a gateway drug. And so the hypothesis was was that when you have a population that has access to marijuana, in all likelihood there's going to be greater use of other illicit drugs. And when and if there's a, if we see a lot of use of illicit drugs, then in all likelihood, these, these, this population is probably also using a lot of marijuana. Okay, so they looked at Japan. Japan, uh, the data showed that by the age of 29, 89.2% of the population had used some form of an illicit drug other than marijuana. However, only one point like six percent of the population had used marijuana, so it blew one of the theories out of the water. Now, the other thing that they did was they compared. Uh, this was back in 2010. Remember, this is when in the United States, uh, marijuana was only available for medical use, not for recreational use. Okay, so they compared the United States to Amsterdam, right, which is known as the marijuana capital of the world, or was at least. And so that population had a lot of access to marijuana. 
the U.S. at the time did not. And so they assumed that there's going to be a lot of illicit drug use in Amsterdam compared to the United States. Not the case. There was more illicit drug use in the United States than in Amsterdam. So this this entire study, international study, sort of you know blew the whole theory that uh, marijuana is a gateway drug out of the water, and that I mean the data sort of speaks for itself in that case. There is potential for addiction. I'm not going to say there is, isn't a potential for addiction. Okay, it all depends on how you use it. When used in moderation, there's little to no potential for addiction. But if you abuse it like a drug, yeah, there is potential for addiction. It's, again, like a lot of other medications. But would you experience any type of withdrawal symptom after stopping chronic use? Are there any reports of that? Um, nothing nothing like with alcohol or opioids. The reason is, is that, that the cannabinoids are fat-soluble, okay? So even if somebody stops at cold turkey, you have stores of it in your body that can help you essentially wean off of it. Worst case scenario, you have withdrawal symptoms for a period of maybe four to six weeks where you have changes in mood, appetite, sleep patterns. That's probably about it. Well, you you just mentioned the fat solubility. So let's use that to dovetail into the different methods of of ingestion, right? The difference between Mm -hmm. smoking and eating and topical application. So what is it, what is important to know about the different methods of ingestion? Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about what are the different methods of administration or delivery methods, right, for marijuana products and for CBD oil products. So uh, common methods include topicals, okay? We do have receptors for cannabinoids in our skin, and so that's one formulation. Then you have edibles, right? Most commonly what's found are things like gummies and chocolates. Then you have what are called tinctures, which is basically a sublingual uh, formulation uh, of either CBD oil or marijuana products. Then you have inhalation, right? Now, yeah, there's smoking, but typically I don't recommend that to my patients. But rather, what I recommend is vaporization. And essentially, that's that's heating these products uh, up to the point where, you know, they're not combusting. So you're not creating hydrocarbons. And then, believe it or not, there's also rectal and vaginal formulations of these cannabinoids as well. And best delivery methods depend on the patient's uh, current medical history and also what other medical conditions they have. So as an example, I've had patients who've uh, undergone gastric bypass surgeries. And what I know from treating patients is that these patients do not absorb edibles well and instead need to use inhalation or sublingual formulations to be, you know, to, to get a, a better effect from the cannabinoids. Or rectally. Yeah, that's another way to use it as well. I'm always going to recommend that method just because it's available. Right. I'm not being serious. <laughs> okay, I thought you were. I was like, yeah, yeah it's a possibility. <laughs> this is the problem um, with having a podcast. I interview people that don't know me so well. Anyone who's listening to the podcast knows that uh, they would just assume that I'm going to say that anyway. That my recommendation, anytime you're administering a, a THC or or CBD, is going to be rectally. It doesn't matter what your condition is in the tush. Well, also a doctor talking to doctor, it's like, okay, yeah, sure, you know, as opposed <laughs> to somebody else. <laughs> okay, sorry to interrupt. 
Yeah. So basically those are the, the, the various different delivery methods and, you know, it varies by condition, like anxiety, for instance, obviously topicals are not going to be effective. Migraine topicals, typically not effective. You have to take it internally. So it's really going to depend on the, the patient's history, the patient's medical condition that they're looking to treat. So what, what do we have to know about, like, say the bioavailability? For those different methods of ingestion, so if you're if you're making a recommendation to a to a patient, right? Because certainly the bioavailability is going to be different for orally, sublingually, transcutaneously, or inhaled, or or rectally. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of information on bioavailability. What we do have information on in terms of pharmacodynamics are peak effects and average duration of effect. Right. Not what percentage is available for your body to consume. Like with inhalation, they have an idea, like inhalation versus vaporization, what amount is actually getting into your body. But we don't we don't have it down to exact numbers yet when it comes to comparing the different methods. But what I can tell you is that with inhalation, the, the peak effect is anywhere from two to four hours. With ingestion, it's six to eight. With sublinguals, it's about four to six hours. Now, duration is a little bit different because, again, it's a fat-soluble substance. So for some patients, you know, the effect can last for a while. I mean, it just depends on, on, on you know, your metabolism of your fat cells. And, I, yeah, I would imagine in patients that have obesity, the half-life is going to be a whole lot longer, right? Because it's right. dissolved in the fat and then, then it's going to more slowly, just like a patient with obesity when they're getting an inhaled anesthetic, right? That's going to be fat soluble and it's going to take a lot longer for them to breathe it off than for someone with less adipose tissue. Right. So there's the half-life in the adipose tissue, but then there's also the plasma half-life as well, right? The plasma half-life from what we know is anywhere from, it can range anywhere from nine to up to 30 hours. That's quite a range. Yeah, it is. All right. So we've, we've spoken about the marijuana derivatives and what they're FDA approved for or approved for in in other countries. What is the most ridiculous thing that someone has hoped that they could use it for, but actually can't use it for? Like, will it help me to regrow my hair or help me break a nine minute mile or something? Have you heard any, say, preposterous use for medical marijuana or derivative thereof that you think is not true? Well, okay. So this is this is a tough uh, situation to be in, but I've had patients come in wanting to cure their cancer with marijuana or CBD oil. And, you know, they may, they, they, most usually what happens is that they read something on the internet that damn Dr. Google and, you know, people are, are telling stories that, yeah, you know, it cured my cancer. And then I have to sit down with them and explain to them that I cannot say with certainty that it will cure your cancer. First of all, the concept of curing a cancer is not even used by physicians, right? We'll say that a cancer is in remission. We won't say it's cured or it's treated. And yes, there's research in animal models and in petri dishes to show that these com- these compounds could have could have anti-cancer properties, but we barely have any research in humans, and so you know it can't be said. But then I- I've had like 
family members of people who'd send patients in, call my receptionist up and, you know, very adamantly say, what does Dr. Patel mean that it doesn't cure cancer? I need to talk to her. She's a doctor in this field. How could she not know this? And so, you know, I'm in the position that a lot of other physicians are where you're fighting medical misinformation on the internet. And it's unfortunate because these patients, especially the patients with cancer, they're doing it at the risk of their life, right? They could potentially, what they, they might be doing is foregoing conventional treatment, which for certain cancers is nowadays very successful, has, they've found ways to, you know, have very targeted therapy treatments that minimize side effects. And yet they're like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, the chemo is going to kill me. I just want to treat, you know, cure my cancer with marijuana or with CBD oil. And so I've had to send these patients back out. I wouldn't issue them the recommendation because it felt like, okay, this is, they're endangering themselves. They're endangering their life by doing this. Yeah. And that's some of the danger of complementary and alternative medicine is, I mean, people make the argument that some of them, well, it doesn't have any negative effects. So if we're taking advantage of the placebo effect, what harm could it be doing? Well, some of the harm is situations like this, where people then take that and run with it and use it not in addition to allopathic medicine, but instead of allopathic medicine. Right. And and the thing is, is that it's being touted as a cure-all. But as a doctor, I always have to remind people, look, it works great for certain medical conditions better than pharmaceutical meds, but not for all conditions, right? So even for instance, like blood pressure, I've had patients come in wanting to treat their blood pressure with, with medical marijuana, with CBD oil. And clinically, I, I've never seen anything. It ha- you know, these med- medications haven't made blood pressure worse, but they haven't made it better. You know, a lot of my patients who started off on uh, antihypertensives a year later after being treated with medical marijuana or CBD oil had to continue to, to stay on antihypertensive. So there, you know, I think that's the other thing. So one of the other things that I do on my YouTube channel is not, do I, not only do I talk about what these substances, you know, CBD oil and marijuana help, but also what do they not help as well? Because I think that's, that's important. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is that a lot of these claims are driven by money, right? People making claims on the internet to sell their products or their services, but they don't realize the harm that can be done in, you know, nonchalantly saying, yeah, marijuana cures cancer. You know, it could be at... I think CBD has gone the way of Frank's Red Hot, right? The commercial for uh, Frank's Red Hot. I put that on everything. I think that's what CBD has has become. So let's actually go into what else, what you do use it for. So what are the conditions that you use to treat, that you use medical marijuana to treat? If you use medical marijuana or you use specifically CBD, please, you know, differentiate between the two. Yeah. So let's start with CBD. What What have I found CBD effective for? Most common conditions, migraines and headaches. Uh, nerve pain, and we're talking about mild to moderate nerve pain, not severe nerve pain, muscular pain, anxiety, and mild to moderate insomnia with THC. In some cases, it's just high amounts of THC that are effective. In some cases, in addition to the THC, you do need some amount of CBD for it to be effective. But overall, within this category, you have autoimmune conditions, 
right? Such as psoriasis, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis. You have uh, uh, nausea, vomiting, lack of appetite, severe nerve pain, and severe insomnia. So those are that covers, I would say, the the most common, like eighty percent of conditions that medical marijuana and the CBD oil are effective for. And then you also have uh, conditions such as autism and other conditions that that fall within the other twenty percent of categories. Well, I. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss today? Because I think this was pretty, pretty comprehensive. Um, no, I hope that, you know, whoever your audience is uh, walks away well-informed with the information that I had to share. They, they definitely will be. So you mentioned that you're going to have Dr. Morales, Dr. AFib on your uh, YouTube channel. So w- where can people find this YouTube channel? Yeah, so just do a Google search for the medical marijuana expert plus YouTube or the CBD oil expert plus YouTube, either one of those two, the channel will show up on the first page of Google search results at the very top. I also have a book that's coming out tomorrow. It's releasing tomorrow, March 5th, and it's on CBD oil. It's titled The CBD Oil Solution. You can find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold, including Barnes & Noble. And then finally, I have a Facebook group that's dedicated to just answering questions about CBD and CBD oil. You can get to that by going to facebook.com backslash groups backslash ask the CBD expert. Isn't there one other product? Um, yes. So I do. I have CBD oil and I also do consultations online as well. So, so that's, that's the full range. You got it all. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. And and one more question. And if you don't want to answer this, I completely understand. Where do you where in the house do you keep your stash? Is it in the medicine cabinet? Is it with the grains? Is it with the uh next to the oregano? Where do you keep it? Okay, so I'm very scientific about this. I keep it in the refrigerator, and that is because the chemicals break down when exposed to heat and light. So to prevent the chemical breakdown, I stick them in the fridge. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can, if you come to my house, open up my refrigerator. That's my sash. <laughs> that's where it is. That's where it is. Okay. All right. Well, it has been extremely informative and comprehensive, and I really appreciate you taking the time, especially the day before a book launch. So best of luck with the book launch, and we'll definitely have links to all of that in, in the show notes. and. Again, appreciate you taking the time. Yep, yep. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.